0: This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." Well, good morning, church.
1: You can see on the screen behind me that we have a new graphic and theme. This is our theme for the upcoming ministry year. Ministry year basically runs from the 1st of September to the end of May. And this year we are emphasizing the idea of transitions. Now why transitions? Well, everyone in here has experienced transitions. Some are experiencing it right now. For example, we have children and teenagers in our church uh, this morning who are going through a major transition. They have gone to a different school this year than they've ever been to before. Some went from elementary school to junior high school. Do you remember what transitioning into junior high was like? Do you remember that? Some of us we had to go way back. But you remember, you know how you had to change classes and you had everybody you had to walk around halls with people that were now much bigger than you, and somebody would always come behind you and give you a wedgie or something, you know, I mean, junior high was tough, that transition, right? Uh, Others of us uh, are having transitions that are even maybe more serious. Uh, We have some who are transitioning into marriage next month, Daniel, right? And congratulations in a couple more weeks. And uh, that's a huge transition, right? Going from single to married. Some of you have transitioned recently from married to single because of, of maybe death. And what a massive transition that is, or perhaps... Due to divorce and uh, and so this, these changes that happen, some of us have transitioned from having houses filled with children to being empty nesters and grandparents. You see, not all transitions are bad, right? And uh, so that's good. So some of you, some of you have had that transition uh, go. Others have transitioned by uh, new jobs, uh, perhaps entering a new job and you're excited about it, or maybe you aren't excited about the transition because you ended up losing your job. Many, many kinds of transitions we go through on a regular basis. Um, We're going through, obviously, a major transition as a church. Things don't look the same around here as they did, right? Things, you know, I walked into the North Forrier and I looked to my right and there's no missions display. There's no cross. There's, we've been taking things down as we've been emptying out of this campus, preparing for Pineapple Cove to take over. And, and we're going to be tenants here for the next 18 months while we build our new facilities. This is a major time of transition for us as a church, Uh, unlike any of the previous transitions we've been through maybe in the last 15 years. And here's the thing about transitions. They can be very difficult, can't they? They can be very difficult. They can be very disturbing. They can be scary because we don't like change. We are resistant to change as human beings. And transitions by definition include change. And they upset the norm, and when change and transition occurs because they are scary, that, that fear, that, that unknown can build up in our hearts and in our minds, and it actually becomes, the transition becomes a gateway for our enemy to enter into our lives, to uh, get us off track spiritually, to upset us emotionally, and, and to even have physical reactions to the transitions that are taking place. The enemy capitalizes on this and the change itself and the fear that is happening, oftentimes that fear is associated with the idolatries that are in our hearts, right? Transitions and changes um, many times will end up affecting those areas of our lives where we are very, very comfortable where we are very secure, where maybe we derive our identity from that job or from this thing that we are a part of. It, it really helps define our purpose and meaning in life. And it's actually, maybe we don't realize it, but it's essentially an idol in our hearts. And the transition ends up attacking the idols of our hearts. And church, whenever our idolatries are attacked in any way, It is typical for a person to respond very negatively, even aggressively, and unspiritually to that kind of assault on the idolaters. We don't like the idols of our hearts challenged. We certainly don't like to change them. And so transitions can become a, a very difficult time. It's a time when we are called to sacrifice. And ultimately, if you really think about it, because you're going from the known to the unknown, transitions are times where God is calling us to faith, where he's calling us to trust him. And so this, for many reasons, is why transitions can be extremely difficult. They can be scary. We can be afraid of them. But the book of Acts is here to tell us we should not be afraid of transitions. The book of Acts is a book that records a major transition in God's redemptive plan of history, where we transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And in the book of Acts, we see how the people of God respond to this major time of transition as the church is getting established. Now, we're going to be in the book of Acts, as I mentioned, probably until next summer. We'll have breaks here and there, like, you know, we have missions conference coming up in a couple of weeks, and we have that thing in December, Christmas, you know, different things. We have Easter and all, we have different stuff. Randy Pope will probably be here in January. He'll speak on whatever Randy wants to speak on. That's, that's his right, right? And uh, so we'll have a few breaks here and there, but by and large, we're going to be in the book of Acts. So let's, let's start this ministry year and this theme by kind of taking a few moments to give you some background on the book of Acts. Knowing the background and knowing, you know, what's going on here will help us as we go through the book. And sometimes we'll end up referring back to some of these, you know, some of these ideas. Uh, Warren Wiersbe has said we should be thankful for the book of Acts. Can you imagine how confusing it would be if we, you know, you read the book of John, the gospel of John. How many of you, the gospel of John is your favorite gospel? Raise your hand. Yeah, lots of you. Yeah, I mean, it's such an uplifting gospel message, right? Imagine if you turn from the last page of that uplifting gospel of John and the next page is the weighty doctrine of Romans chapter one and two with Paul. You're going to be going, what? Hey, what? wait, 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 what happened here? What? Something's going, you know, I'm missing. This doesn't, this doesn't work, right? The book of Acts is really needed. It, it bridges us from the wonderful, uplifting message of John until to where we now get into these meaty portions of teaching that are in the epistles that Paul has written. We need it. It was written somewhere between 63 and probably 67 AD. Now, why do we say that time frame? There's, there's internal reasons within the book of Acts to believe this when you put it into the context of history of that day. In 70 AD, right, the, the temple and the city of Jerusalem is destroyed by the Roman empires. This is the cataclysmic event in the life of Israel. And there's no mention of it in the book of Acts. In fact, there's also no mention of the death, the martyrdom of two of the main apostles, Peter and Paul, which happened around 67 AD during the persecutions of Nero. In fact, the book of Acts ends with Paul in house under house arrest in Rome, waiting for his hearing before Caesar, which according to church history, uh, he won that appeal. He's released for a little season of time. And then the persecutions of Nero break out. He's wrapped up in that, and that's when he loses his life. And so This happens sometime when Paul is in Rome before he's executed. That's a pretty tight window. 63 to 67 AD is when this is taking place. The author is Luke, Dr. Luke. Hey, here's a trivia question for you. You can pull this one out at your next party, okay? Dr. Luke is responsible for He's the third most prolific author of the Bible. In other words, he has written the third most words in the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. There's two guys above him. Who do you think those two guys are? Think about that for a second. Turn to your neighbor, tell, me who, tell them who you think number one and number two are, okay? Go ahead. All right, somebody tell me who was number one. Moses, somebody, a bunch of y'all said Moses. How many of y'all said Moses was number one? All right, you're the smart kids in the class, right? Yeah, Moses, clearly number one was Moses. Who was number two? Wow, Paul, John, Jeremiah, okay, good, really good. Um, Ezra, how about that? Ezra is, is number two, nobody got that one. All right, Luke is number three, right? Uh, Jeremiah is number four and Paul would be number five. So so it's interesting, isn't it? When we think of the New Testament, who do we think is the most prolific writer of the New Testament? Paul, right, because so many of the books are written by him. But when you look at the word count, Luke is much more than the apostle Paul. He's written about 27% of the entire New Testament is written by Luke. So who is this guy? Well, you know, modern, modern scholarship and even there's been a common idea that Luke is a Gentile, that he is the only Gentile writer of the Bible. And it's possible that he could be a Gentile. Um, he, uh, he lived apparently in, in Antioch, either Antioch of Syria or Pisidia, one of the two. And he came from there, he was a doctor. Uh, his parents uh, either were Jewish who had maybe been dispersed, like many Jews had been during that day around the Mediterranean world, or they were Gentiles who had been converted to Judaism. Um, And and the reason why we believe that is because Luke has such in-depth knowledge of the Old Testament, unlike most Gentiles. And so he clearly had been, you know, studying and raised in all likelihood in the truth of the Old Testament. Um, personally, I believe that Luke was a Jew, okay? And the only reason why people say he's a Gentile is Colossians chapter four. And the reasoning there in Colossians chapter four is thin at best. Um, And so I, I personally believe he was a Jew. His parents were dispersed. He lived in Antioch. He's raised in the synagogue, right? He comes into contact with the apostle Paul during his second missionary journey. When Paul is in Troas, getting ready to go over to Macedonia and heed the Macedonian call. At that point, he is, he's introduced to Luke. Why was he introduced to Luke? Because a few days before, Paul had been stoned and everybody thought he was dead. He needed a what? Doctor. And Luke is a doctor in Troas at that time. And from that point on, Luke essentially becomes Paul's personal doctor. Assistant, and he travels with him in the second and third missionary journey. He, he's not with him all of the time. There's some times where there's a gap, about five-year gap in there when Paul was in Corinth and Paul was at Ephesus. But by and large, Luke is very involved in Paul's ministry. In fact, at, he is with Paul at the end of his life. You know, there's this sad, I think it's sad, at the end of his life when he's under house arrest in Rome, he writes to Timothy, his protege, and he says, I'm cold in this prison, and can you send the parchments? And there's no one here with me except for Dr. Luke. Luke is with him to the very end. Luke travels with him. He has a a great perspective. And so at different times in the book of Acts, you will see the, the plural pronoun, we and us, right? That's, those are periods of times when Luke was present with them. Other times, it reads like a history account. Luke isn't present with them, but he's gotten the records and the narratives, and he's collected these things, and he's writing it like a historian. He's very well educated. hes You see this in the Greek language that he uses. It's very formal. It's classical, and it's in its uh, structure as far as Koine Greek goes. He uses medical terms, Throughout the books, that he's a doctor and he takes those medical terms and they're appropriated for spiritual purposes. It's really kind of neat how God works through the skill set and the abilities of Luke to write the Gospel of Luke and Acts. He went about this as a historian for a very definite purpose, and you see his technique and purpose in Luke chapter 1 in the prologue. In that prologue, he writes, In as much that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There's a lot of information in those verses <clears throat> and you see it in the original languages here, right? He, in one way of saying this, he goes, I wrote this treatise. I researched this treatise for you, O most excellent Theophilus. Uh, that's important. Most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was probably a governing official, somebody with stature in the Roman Empire. Most excellent is like a title that he's giving him, okay? And Theophilus was apparently a relatively new Christian who had been catechized and baptized into the church. That last word, taught, is the Greek word from which we get our word, catechism or catechizing someone, okay? So he had come to Christ, he had been taught the basics of the Christian faith, and for some reason, maybe he commissioned Luke and that was a common thing to be done. And so this is a research project and Luke jumps into it. Or it's just that they have this relationship and he's wanting to help disciple Theophilus. He does all of this research. He interviews, the, the idea in this passage is that he interviewed people, uh, people who are eyewitnesses to what took place with Jesus. Remember, the apostle Paul would tell us that at the time of his life, which Luke was there, there were more than 500 people still alive who had witnessed and interacted with the resurrected Jesus. Many of them lived in Palestine and for in Israel. And for for two years, Luke is with Paul when he is in house arrest in Caesarea in the area of Israel. For two years, Luke is there And you can imagine that during those two years, he didn't waste his time. He talked to the apostles and other people who interacted with Jesus. Ephesus would become the place where the apostle John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, would end up settling in. And again, Luke was there. So he talks to these different people and he composes the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Acts. Acts because it has what? Action right? A lot of action in the book of Acts, a lot of themes and words that appear in this passage numerous times, right? You have, for example, the word Holy Spirit 55 times. Prayer is almost 30 times. Witnesses, almost 30 times. You have miracles and wonders and signs and persecution and missions and Gentiles and, of course, apostles, right? Apostles. In our small group, Wednesday night, we asked the question, or somebody asked the question, the acts of who? Acts of what, right? Acts of what? How would you answer? The acts of? Several of you said apostles, right? You open up the Bible, it says the acts of the apostles. Guess what? The early church, the very earliest church, there's references that they they referred to this book as the gospel of the Holy Spirit, or the gospel of the resurrection or simply Acts. It didn't become Acts of the Apostles until the 200s with Arrhenius, who gave it that tagline and it stuck and it's passed down through the centuries. It's really, the, it's just Acts. Acts of who, right? I, I mean, you could make the case that it's the Acts of God the Father. He's, he's predominant in the book of Acts. Or, of course, you, you in early church, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is everywhere in the, the book of Acts. I mean, if you think about the apostles, if you really wanted to give a, a, a more accurate title, if you look at the apostles in the book of Acts, the title would be Some Actions by a Few Apostles. That would be the title. Because most of the apostles aren't referred to. It's really only Peter of the original 12 and then Paul, right? And so, no, much of the book of Acts is not that. I would, I would actually contend, and I guess I prefer, this is a personal preference, I, and you'll see why here in just a moment, I, I prefer the acts of Jesus. The acts of Jesus. Now, you can say the acts of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, the acts of Jesus through the church, the acts of Jesus through the apostles. I kind of prefer the acts of Jesus. Okay, let's look at these opening verses, which provide the very first transition in this book, the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, Luke writes two volumes to Theophilus, and Jesus' ascension is at, if you put those two volumes together, Jesus' ascension is at the center of those two volumes, right? If you Here at the beginning of Acts, he starts the book of Acts with the ascension of Jesus. If you go to the book of Luke, he completes and finishes the book of Luke with the ascension of Jesus. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. The gospel of Luke, is the story and actions of what Jesus did prior to the Ascension. The book of Acts essentially is the story and actions of what Jesus has done and is doing since the Ascension. You put these two together, the Ascension acts as the pivot point of the two volumes. Now these opening verses Before we get to the ascension, they highlight that 40-day period between Jesus's resurrection and the ascension. And we glean some important things there. He says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. For 40 days, the disciples of Jesus and the apostles enjoy intermittent events and interaction with Jesus. He would come and go in their lives and different things would take place. Uh, Three words kind of help us understand what was going on here. Convincing, teaching, instructing, right? Convincing, teaching, and instructing. The convincing part, through objective interactions with Jesus, right? He was proving to them that he wasn't a ghost, that it was was not a mirage, that he had literally physically risen from the dead. Remember, we're talking more than 500 people who would end up interacting with Jesus. They would see him. They would touch him. This was important. They would touch him. They would eat meals with him. They testified that he ate broiled fish. In other words, this is a physical body, a person who's been come to life, who's eating meals. In fact, there's stories in the in the gospels where Jesus, after his resurrection, he makes a fire and he cooks the fish and the meal. So he's eating, he's cooking meals, he's the first person to blacken fish. I'm certain of this, right? Okay, he's real and he's physical and he's tangible, right? And this is important because these are the people who will go throughout the world and they will end up giving up their lives swearing to this fundamental, most important truth of Christianity. Our Lord died, he was buried, but he rose again. He's resurrected, he is a living Lord, not a dead symbol. And so convincing them was important, teaching them. We see here in this opening passage, just as Jesus began his ministry, teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God, he does it at the very end of his ministry during this 40 days. He's helping them connect the dots, as we saw with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he goes from the law to the prophets and the Psalms and he shows how everything in the old covenant in the Old Testament finds its completion and fulfillment in him. And he's helping them to recapitulate their thinking about the kingdom of God. And then there's instructing, right? For example, he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, don't worry about them. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, Peter. Peter, feed my sheep, right? He tells them in this passage, go back to Jerusalem, wait there until the Holy Spirit comes, and then you're going to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So he spends time instructing them. Now, put yourself in the apostles' shoes for a minute. Let's say you had gone through that 40-day period of time with Jesus. I mean, you've seen Jesus rise from the dead. You have seen Jesus literally walk through walls. I mean, that's pretty cool, right? He's got a body, but it's different than the body he had before the resurrection. It's a glor- more of a glorified body, right? And, and he's teaching and he's demonstrating that he has risen from the dead. They are more convinced than ever. He is the promised Messiah that God has given us. He is the one who's going to deliver us from of bondage. He is the one who can restore the nation of Israel to its former glory, and now you spend 40 days with this person who you thought had died. Now he's resurrected. He is clearly the one promised by God. What are you expecting him to do? You're expecting him to kick some Roman keister. That's what you're expecting, right? And so you come to verse six, and and I totally get this. I'd be there too. I'd be with the Roman, I'd be with the apostles, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, will you restore the land and give us back that heritage and fulfill all those promises that were made to David in the covenant with, that God made with David? I understand why they're thinking like this. And instead, they get the ascension. <laughs> I mean, think about it. They ask the question, Lord, is it time now to, you know, let's, let's go do it. It's about to go down. Let's get rid of the Romans. Lord, is that time for that? And he says, here, here's his answer. Here are his final words to them, right? Would you stop worrying about all that stuff? Now go and tell Jerusalem, Jesus, <laughs> I mean, that's what happens. You're talking about a transition that is hard to top for dramatic effect. The ascension is a transition that you can't top for dramatic effect. These final words, and the next thing you know, he said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Jesus gives these last words. We're gonna gonna look more closely at these last words next week as we get closer to our missions conference. But he gives us these last words, then suddenly a cloud takes him out of their sight. What's with the cloud? What's with the reference to the cloud? Does this mean that, you know, like a lot of the classical paintings, you know, you see Jesus, his arms normally held up like this, you know, and other hand is like this, and he's going up in the sky, and, you know, way up above him, there's white frothy clouds. Does this mean that Jesus, you know, you know, goes up, or he does like a Superman, you know, and and before you know it, he's above clouds, and you can't see him because of the clouds. Is that what it means? I, I don't think so. I don't think at all that this is what's going on here. I think it's actually kind of important about what's mentioned with these clouds. There's a purpose here. Remember what Luke said? He said, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was what? What's the next word? Carried up, right? In both Luke and in Acts, the words are passive. This is done to Jesus. It's not a Superman spring to, up out of this, in this. Not at all. This is done to Jesus. I, I think this cloud's important. And the reason why it's important is the, the Jewish disciples, they needed to see this. You see, again, they're raised in the Old Testament. And they know that the promised prophesied Messiah in Daniel, what happens is that in the Daniel chapter there's this incredible picture in heaven where the Son of Man, which is the term in Luke, that is always used to refer to Jesus as Messiah. the Messiah, the Son of Man. The Son of Man comes before the ancient one of days, the heavenly Father. And in that vision, it says, the Son of Man comes before the Father carried by the clouds. He's on the clouds and he's presented to God. And God says, all of this is now yours. This is your dominion. You're the king. You're the Messiah. You're in charge. You're reigning over all of my creation. That imagery is what you see in part here with the ascension. This cloud comes, carries Jesus. So I, I mean, I think this cloud is that cloud that we see in the Old Testament repeatedly. It's the Shekinah glory of God, right? Right? It comes down upon Mount Sinai when Moses is there receiving the Ten Commandments from God. It's that cloud that would lead them through the wilderness by day and as a pillar by night. It's the cloud that rested over the tabernacle. And then when the Temple of Solomon was built, that cloud moves and it inhabits the Holy of Holies, showing the people that the presence of God is now with them in this temple. It's that cloud that Ezekiel would see departing through the eastern gate in his vision indicating that God had had his fill with the rebellion and sin of Israel and now was coming the time of judgment because of their rejection of their God. It's that cloud that came down in Matthew when Jesus and Peter and James and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration and it envelops them and the voice of God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I think that's this cloud that comes and it takes Jesus away. And if you're the apostles and all of a sudden he says, okay guys, this is what you're to do. See you." And the cloud, shoom, what would your response be? What do you think your reaction would be? <laughs> right? I mean, if this was a cartoon, they would give us eyes as big as saucers and they would unhinge our jaws and they would be hanging on the floor, right? If this was a cartoon. I think this is a, uh, so. is, uh, and while they were gazing into heaven, in other words, they're there and they are looking, where did he go? Do you see him? I don't see him anymore. And, and in this dramatic event, here comes the comedy. Here comes the comedic moment. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, you're talking about a question. Angels, what are you? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I swear if I was an apostle at that point in time, I know they're angels, but I would have turned to them and said, are you kidding me? <laughs> Didn't you just see what happened? <laughs> you know. But there's a point here. The angels are telling them, hey, stop looking, get to working it to the mission. go do what the Lord said. He's going to come back one day, but you have a mission to complete before he comes. Now go. Don't stand around looking anymore. What a transition. When it comes to the transitions, this one in Acts, man, guys, it's a doozy of a transition. But you know, the, the impact of this transition, this ascension, isn't in the miraculous events and elements of it. I would suggest that there's more here that shows why it is so important, so necessary that this first transition take place. Let me pose it to you like this Dr. Lloyd Ogilvie was the chaplain of the US Senate in the 80s and 90s, and he once asked, and I want you to think about this, I want you to tell your neighbor your, your, your answer, okay? He once asked this question If we had to forego the celebration of Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, or Pentecost, right? If, you ha- if we had to forego the celebration of one of those four, Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, or Pentecost, which one would seem least crucial to you? Okay, think about that. Now turn to the person and answer. Go ahead. Which one would seem least crucial to you? Y'all aren't turning to each other, so this is a stumper, isn't it? Okay, all right, real quick. How many of you said Easter, raise, or excuse me, Christmas? Raise your hand. Okay, several of you said Christmas, wow. How many of you said uh, uh, Good Friday? Raise your hand. A few. Okay. How about Easter? Raise your hand. One. I got to figure out why you said that, Charlie. Okay, oh, two. Okay, there's two of you. All right. Stephanie? That's Stephanie back there. Okay. You got to tell me what you're thinking there. All right. Uh, Easter. Okay. So at least some of you think the crucifixion and Easter isn't that big a deal. Okay. All right. No. (laughs) How many of you said Pentecost? Raise your hand. Yeah. A lot of you said Pentecost. Okay. Um, uh, Listen, church. I mean, that's a trick question. The the answer is none of them, (laughs) right? (laughs) None of them. They're all crucial. We have to celebrate all of them. But, you know, we are often tempted, especially in the modern church, we're tempted to answer Pentecost. I was actually surprised with the number of you who said Christmas. I mean, think about it, guys. If he's not born, we got a problem, okay? So just think about that, okay? But uh, I get it. You don't have to celebrate it. I understand that part. Um, But most of us are tempted, I think, to think Pentecost, but yet the coming of the Holy Spirit is the reason that Jesus gives us here for why he must leave and ascend to heaven, right? This is the reason why he must leave. He says in verse four, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. You know, an early associate of Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Here's your kicker. There's a good chance it may have been Luke. Okay. We know it's an associate of Paul because at the end of the book of Hebrews, Paul writes a few verses giving his stamp of approval over everything that had been written by that author, right? But we don't know who exactly the author was, but it was an associate of Paul. Paul endorses the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, we get one of the best reasons why the ascension is necessary, why this transition is necessary. In Hebrews chapter four verses 14 to 16, we are told that the ascension was necessary. This transition is necessary so that Jesus could return to heaven and take on this role as our heavenly high priest who now intercedes before us with the heavenly father. And because of what Jesus is doing right now in heaven, serving us as our high priest, he goes on to say that we have the confidence to enter into the throne room of God anytime we want with our prayers, our burdens, our requests, our questions. And we can be confident that when we bring these things to our heavenly father, he hears us and we will receive what we need in return. And it's all All happens because of the ascension of Jesus Christ taking on this important role. In the book of 1 John, the Apostle Paul, excuse me, Apostle John, he says, The ascension—it's important. Why? Because now that Jesus has ascended into heaven's throne room before the judgment seat of God, we have present there an advocate with the Father. And every one of us who are sinners—which we all are—we can be confident that when Satan comes to accuse us before the Father, we have Jesus, the one who shed His blood and atoned for our sins, there acting as our advocate, saying, "They are not." Not guilty. I have paid the penalty of those sins. Right? Ascension is incredibly difficult, uh, di- uh, important, and yet the reason Jesus gives for the necessity of the ascension of why this first transition must happen is because we need the Holy Spirit more at this time than the physical presence of Jesus himself. That's a mind blower. Because all of us, we, we think to ourselves, you know, if Jesus was just here now, wouldn't it be different? Wouldn't it be easier to believe? And yet Jesus taught his own apostles that this ascension, the necessity of this ascension was such it had, had to happen so that we could have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Before he was ever crucified, in John chapter 16, he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. In other words, flip it, it would be a disadvantage to you if I stayed. Okay? It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Why would he say this? Because our norm would be, no, I want Jesus here physically. The, The reason why he would say this is really kind of obvious. As God in the flesh... Walking to earth, yes, he had a glorified body. We mentioned that, you know, you go through walls, stuff like that after the resurrection. That's kind of cool. But he's still constrained by the laws of creation. Jesus was still the perfect human being, which meant that he can't be in two places at the same time, right? He's constrained as God in the flesh. But the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus is not constrained by these things. Think about that. This week, in your covenant groups, maybe talk about this question. Why is it important that we have the Holy Spirit now instead of Jesus physically here on earth? Think about that this week. It'll come to you. We're gonna talk more in the weeks ahead about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and who he is. And we're gonna dig into all that the book of Acts teaches us. But right now, as we move towards the Lord's Supper, Let me close by noting how this first transition and its necessity teaches us something about all these other transitions that we face in life that many of us are going through right now. Transitions, we see it here with the coming of the Holy Spirit. We see it in the transitions of life. Transitions are often an opportunity to experience the presence and power of God more vividly. Because the Holy Spirit has come, with this first transition, because this sets the stage for Pentecost and the Holy Spirit now comes, you and I as believers, hear this, we experience the presence and the power of God on a daily basis in ways that our old covenant brothers and sisters never experienced. This is because of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, an event that could only happen after a transition, the ascension. This is true in Acts chapter 1. This is true in the greatest transition that I've walked with people through the years. You know, our, our final transition on this earth is when we leave this earth and we die. Death is the ultimate transition until our resurrection, right? And as I minister and talk and interact with brothers and sisters through the decades who have been at death's door, do you know the number, I've lost count, the number of times that they have turned to me and said at some point, words along these lines, you know, I have never felt the presence of God more than I have in these last several days. I have never felt the peace of God more than I have in these works. Do you know, I feel like I've been a more effective witness to my family in the last few weeks than I have in the last several decades. What's going on with this? Transitions. Those are those times when we can often experience the presence and the power of God more vividly. This is why we shouldn't be afraid of transitions. Whether it's a transition from elementary to junior high or junior high to senior high or from one school to another school or from singleness to marriage or from marriage to singleness or from one job to another job or from one location as a church for almost 40 years to another location. We need not fear these things they are opportunities for us to experience his power. We all go through transitions. And these verses, they encourage us not to fear them, but to embrace them. Not to run from them, but to see how is God going to work in them. This meal, the Lord's Supper, is a transition. It was at one point, wasn't it? On that Passover day, Jesus turns to the apostles and a time of transition is now there. And he takes the normal Passover meal and he changes it as the old covenant is going away and he's establishing the new covenant. It's a time of change, a time of transition. This meal came about during a time of transition. In fact, this meal actually reminds us of the most important transition that can occur in any of our lives. It reminds us of our need. To turn away from that person who lives for self, who lives according to their own law and their own rules and follows after sin and instead has turned away and rejected that way of life and embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That transitions from death to life eternal. The most important transition any of us can experience and enjoy. This meal reminds us of what's taking place in our lives if we're a Christian. And if you aren't a Christian, this meal is a message and a sermon to you in physical form. It is an illustration, an object lesson saying, you need that ultimate transition because now you walk the way of death. But only through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ can you have life. Turn from death. Embrace Christ. Embrace life. That is a transition that will bring joy and peace into your life that we can't begin to describe. So this morning, church, as we come together, we enjoy this meal, remembering what it indicates for those of us who have believed. If you're not a believer, this meal is for you to sit and be encouraged to repent, to trust in Christ. If you're not a member of our church, you're invited to take this meal with us as long as you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you're in good standing with another church. You know, the Bible tells us, the Apostle Paul, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let's pause at this moment before we enjoy this meal together. Let me encourage you to bow your heads, to examine yourself, to pray a simple prayer. Holy Spirit, would you bring to my mind any sin that's in my life that I have not confessed that I'm coddling and holding on to? Let's spend time in prayer together for a few moments. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as your children, we can come to you. We don't have to come perfectly this morning, for none of us are perfect. All of us are sinners in need of your grace, and we thank you for the grace that we have through your Son, Jesus Christ, who purchased it for us on the cross when he laid down his life for our sins. Lord Jesus, as we come before you this morning, wanting to be strengthened by you in this meal, Through your spirit in our lives, we ask that you would purify us and cleanse us. That you would take all these sins and separate them as far as the east is from the west. We rejoice that they do not come back to be accusing us anymore. But we can come before you as your brothers and sisters, eating this meal with you, pure and clean, because your blood covers all of our sins. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen. You have the elements with you. Let me encourage you at this time, take off the, the wafer side first. Okay, go ahead and take that off and then flip it. And then take off the drink side secondly. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all of our sins, right? That through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have fellowship one with another. Let's take and eat as the body of Christ. The scriptures tell us that on that meal, after they'd eaten it together, the apostles with their Lord Jesus sang a song together in harmony and unity. So let's stand and close out our service this morning with songs.